This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Steve Toltz, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me. Well, uh, we've got to give our listeners a bit of perspective. I mean, here we are in downtown Los Angeles. Yeah. <laughs> I can't believe it. It's the first kind of face-to-face podcast I've done in some time because we've been Zooming with everybody. Of course. So it's so, so lovely to be here with you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for coming. I mean, you didn't come all the way for me, but thanks for yeah. inviting me on. Well, I did. I kind of hunted you down. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know that? I'm, I'm flattered. I'm flattered. <laughs> You're flattered. I was just like, I am not going to come to LA without speaking to you. Um, and so anyway, it's happened. So thank you for showing up today. All right. Let me introduce you because there are a few people that may not, may not know who you are. Uh, Steve was born in Sydney. His first book, A Fraction of the Whole, uh, was published in 2008 to widespread critical acclaim. It was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and the Guardian First Book Award. Equally, acclaimed a second novel called Quicksand, which was published by Hamish Hamilton in 2015 and won the 2017 Russell Prize for Humour. Shortly after its publication, Steve relocated to Los Angeles, which is where we are now, to work as a screenwriter. I mean, you've had so many interesting jobs, haven't you? I've had a few. I don't know. I mean, they might they might sound more interesting than they are to live them in real. Okay. Well, we're going to talk about them. Let me just finish the intro. He has uh, writing credits on major Hollywood productions, but we're here to talk about Steve's new book, and it's called "Here Goes Nothing." It's one of the zaniest, craziest, most wonderful book I've read in a long time. <laughs> it's it's not normal, you know. <laughs> Thank you. Would you say that? (laughs) That's meant to be a compliment. Yes, I'll take it as a compliment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I want to talk to you about all these crazy jobs and about how you came to writing because, I I don't know, from the research that I've done on you, it it kind of, to me, the trajectory of your career is storytelling. Yes. Talk to me about that. I would say that. I mean, I would say writing was just... Uh, it came kind of naturally to me that that was my kind of default hobby as a kid. Um, And then in my 20s, I kind of thought more that I wanted to be more a filmmaker. So I made a bunch of short films and and started heading in that direction. Um, But I was always kind of writing short stories. And um, yeah, there was, I remember there was a, um, a short story competition. I was also just trying to make money. And so when you're sort of generally unskilled and, you know, a competition came up for like, you know, a short story here or short story there. And I, I would submit, I definitely submitted a lot that I didn't, I, that I never heard back from. And yeah, one of them, in fact, I never won any of them, but um, at the end of it, I had like a couple of short stories, one that looked like 
a good beginning of a book and the other the end of a book and then I just thought I'd join the middle and that's how the first book came and so yeah I was always kind of making shorts writing short stories um so tell me about growing up so when you were like say in primary school did you think that you might be a writer was it something that you were passionate about or it was just no it was not what were you reading at that time do you think I do remember that I li- really liked writing stories, but it wasn't something that I have considered as a job. I don't know if I even knew it was <laughs> it was a possible um, it was a possible jo- job to do. Um, I read a lot of Roald Dahl, but the way that you know I read all the kids' books, and then because my parents had them had all of his books. I remember putting down like the BFG and then picking up a book called Switch Bitch, which is this really nasty misogynistic tale of a guy who wants to sleep with his neighbor's wife. And he makes this kind of plot with his neighbor to that they would have sex with the other's wife without the wives finding out. And, <laughs> and, and how old were you there? <laughs> probably 10. Yeah. And then, you know, going from that book to another Roald Dahl book, which I sort of thought they were all kids' books. And then there was another one called Michael Oswald. I don't know if you know that book, where it's about stealing sperm from um, from the sort of the great geniuses of the world uh, to sell to rich women who are married to kind of idiots. Um, There's a pattern here. I'm, I'm picking up a pattern. Yeah. But just so, I mean, I, I, like I... You know, Roald Dahl gets, obviously, he's, you know, he's one of the world's famous authors, but he's also, I think, the world's greatest storyteller. He um, So, yeah, I just, I guess I started reading kind of more adult fiction at a younger age. Yeah, because um, at the time, the YA category really kind of didn't exist, did it, back then? You kind of went from children's books to adult books. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess there was like... The Essie Hinton, yes, you know, Rumble, the Outsiders, yeah, yeah, Rumblefish, The Outsiders. Yeah. Um, I think there was some, but it, but it certainly wasn't labelled that. No, Jack Kerouac, maybe for, for yeah for people. Okay, so in high school, did you feel that that was that passion was developing for writing or storytelling? I think so, but it wasn't. It was sort of parallel. I certainly didn't. How, you know, I didn't do it in a, in in school, um, but uh, yeah, it was always just something that I was doing <clears throat> as a as a hobby. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so when did you become serious about writing? And tell me the process of writing uh, your first book, your first published book, Fraction of a Whole. Uh, talk to me about that. Yeah, so I'd written so yeah, early twenties. I was writing short films and and really into that, and I. Um, bought one of the very first kind of digital cameras and I worked for a while as a cameraman around Sydney filming comedians for like the comedy channel and then one day I was filming kind of a what was it it was kind of like in some kind of infomercial thing and I and I had this set up in in Rose Bay where I got my friend to I don't know he was he was on a desk it's a very elaborate setup but the upshot was I I dropped the camera in the water um, and I remember calling someone and saying, how do I do it? And he's like, drop it in a, in a bucket of, cl- of water and rice. And I'd never heard of that. And I thought that sounds ridiculous. So I didn't do that. And the camera was ruined, but I got the insurance money. And then I ended up moving to Spain and I was teaching English there. And that's when I just sort of started writing this, 
the short story that he, that sort of started expanding and expanding. As I said, I had these two short stories and thought I would fill in the middle. I just didn't know the middle would be sort of 500 pages and take me kind of, you know, sort of a number of years, five years. How many words was it? It's quite a big book. Do you I remember? Really, I really can't remember. Okay. I know that the first, yeah, I had a thousand page version yeah. that I had first sent out to publishers yeah. um, and that certainly all got rejected before I, I cut out about 300 pages. Right. Is that what you did to get published? You didn't find an agent first. You just sent it out yourself. I mean, talk to me about that process because that's you know, very difficult, as you know. Yeah, I had sent it out to a bunch of agents yeah. and I'd gotten a number of rejections. And then it was very random. My sister met a writer at a party and she asked that writer, like, do you know an agent? And that writer said, look, I'll send it to, I'll give you the name of a, of a publisher in, um, in like Random House in New York and maybe he can recommend an agent because he's a friend of mine and he, I sent it to this guy and he actually just said, no, no, I want to publish this. And then it just sort of spiraled from there. Is that right? So you were first published in the US. I don't think I knew that. Um, yeah, I mean, I was published simultaneously, but the first publisher that I found um, was was in the US. Oh, okay. All right. And I always it, it thought it was kind Sydney. Of yeah. spiraled out from there. Yeah. And so the, yeah. Okay, so people often ask me, what, you know, how do you write a book? I don't know why, because I'm not a writer, but they do. And it's a topic that comes up a lot at Better Reading. And I always say to people, it's almost impossible to write a first book that's going to be a bestseller, right? And yeah. I, I think I use the line that it's like winning the lottery. Yeah. And you won the lottery. Well, the the bigger question and the more important question is like, how do you write a book rather than how do you write a book that sells? Because you don't really know what's going to happen and it's very arbitrary what kind of gets um, gets picked up in the end, you know, the, the, the sort of catches on fire. Because there's obviously, I remember there was a moment where, you know, in my naivety as a, as a reader, I used to think that, you know, any great book that exists must be in the bookstore. Yeah. Like it never occurred to me that there were just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of the greatest works of literature that have just gone out of print or that, you know, are just not fashionable today. So in terms of like how do you write a, how do you write a book, it's sort of like there is that that quote, I can't remember who said it, it's like writing a book is like um, like driving on the highway at night. You can only see as far as the headlights, but you can still make a very long journey that way. So you just, it's, you know, it's just little bit by little bit. Yeah. So I remember very clearly, because I think I was, um, I remember seeing a politician reading it on a plane and thinking, I've got to get a copy of that book. And that's fraction of a whole. But I remember it really resonated with readers. I mean, it was instantly successful. And when books are instantly successful, and that's one of the questions I often get asked, I think, I think they have to tap into the culture. There is something about the moment when people read books. And I think the fraction of the whole was in that moment. Do you think that, that it resonated for that reason, that readers were loving it? Because for a book to sell that much and then to be shortlisted in the Booker Prize, it had to have had a following. Yeah, I, I don't know if I agree about the moment because, I mean, certainly like books that were published, you know, like, you know, 50, 60 years ago can suddenly have another moment. Um, Why, though? It's usually because they hit a moment now. Well, I don't know. I mean, for instance, for some reason, 
my books are popular in Iran. I don't know why, mm. um, you know, why Iran and not Afghanistan or, you know, or wherever else. I mean, I what is the reason for it? And it's been pretty steady. Like, um, so it, it's it's kind of, I mean, you know, as a writer, you kind of also don't want to think that you're writing something that is ephemeral or that, you know, that is that goes off like milk so that any moment that, you know, if it has something universal about it, it should it should work in the moment now and it should work in the moment in 50 years and should work, you know, anytime. Mm. Mm. So how did you respond to the success of that first book? Because it, it really must have been quite a shock. Um, I know this might not sound, seem believable, but it's it's sort of just like a job, you know, like, I, I mean... It was something that I decided I want as my career and it's sort of like getting, in a way, you know, finding out that you're going to be published is the, was the big step. It's like, okay, it's like going for a job interview and then you find out you're going to be published is like getting hired. And then whether the book sells or something is like, you know, it's like getting a paycheck or something. It, It doesn't, it's, it's not more than that. Right. And at that point, do you think that you, as a profession, would have then called yourself a writer or an author? Yeah. I think, yeah. Well, I think you know, there was certainly those years when I was writing and people say, what do you do? And there is that kind of anxiety of like, do I say I'm a writer? Because I certainly felt like one, but I was also, you know, whether I was teaching English or doing whatever other thing I was doing, um, yeah, it was, un- but certainly once you're published, you can say it. Hmm. You're a great, I mean, I think when I think about your writing, I feel as though you're a great observer. I mean, a lot of writers have to be, but there's the nuance of humans that you kind of pick up on. Fear, anxiety, humor. Yeah, I mean, a lot of, I mean, a lot of different writers have different motivations and certainly, you know, I have a st- storytelling motivation and I also have a motivation in like exploring ideas and thinking about ideas and writing about ideas but yeah human motivation and human behavior and sort of you know the the kind of products of consciousness is like that's the thing that's most interesting to me so I think I tend to write about human motivations more than um, anything else. Mm. Um, talk to me about um, moving to the US and to Los Angeles. And I, I want to get that in the context of cultural shifts, you know, because uh, we might speak the same language, but as you know, it's very, very different culturally. Talk to me about that and what made it motivated you to come here. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've kind of moved around a little bit and I lived in France and I lived in New York as well. But here... Yeah, we. Were, I was just a family decision, and and basically thinking that you know writers need to do something else. I mean, I mean, as you say, like I, you you might think I've won the lottery, but I, I also you know I've produced three books, one every seven years, so that's like three books in a twenty-one year period, and you know you need something else to make a living. So a lot of the writers, certainly that I know in the United States, and I, I guess also to an extent in Australia, they either teach as, as a second job, which is not something that I just 
want to do or feel qualified to do. Secondly, they do journalism, which is something I really don't want to do. Um, and I don't, I don't want to write nonfiction um, or journalism. And so, you know, as, as screenwriting was the thing that I wanted to do in my 20s, it became natural to sort of gravitate towards wanting to kind of get into a little bit of that in TV. And also, generally, writing a novel, you know, I love it, but it's, you know, it's me alone in a room writing for TV is a, um, you, you know, you're in a writer's room and it's collaborative. Yeah. It's collaborating. It's, and it's a fun, I mean, I've had a limited experience of it. I've done it a few times and it's, um, it's, it's a really fun job because it's, it's not actually a writing job. It's a brainstorming job, mm-hmm. um, with sort of 10% writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just like you're at a dinner party. It's mm-hmm. really fun. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile. We like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Talk to me about cultural differences because I spoke to Peter Carey, you know, just yeah. as the, the pandemic hit and, you know, we were talking about... I mean, you know, he still writes quintessentially Australian books, even though he's lived in New York probably for 30 years. Yeah. So talk to me about that, about the writing process and, and what's around you and identity, I guess. Do you feel that you're, you're Australian writing in Los Angeles or, or in the US or do you feel now that you're American because your family's here? Talk to me about that and how that impacts your writing. To be honest, weirdly, it doesn't. And I think that's, I think I completely understand why Peter Carey still writes about Australia. I guess your formative years, uh, you know, just seep into your DNA. And like I said, I'm writing in a room. I'm Mm. not, I'm not writing in the United States of America. I'm Mm. writing in a room. And more than that, I'm kind of writing in my head. So as I've kind of moved around, this is sort of just another location and it has almost no bearing oh, on wow. my writing other than and especially now that half of our lives are online and so we we're all in this kind of global we're all in this kind of yeah this this weird netherworld where we mostly exist geography has never mattered less mm, true absolutely true yeah Talk to me um, about the process of writing for you. Like, is it like a nine-to-fiver? Is it that you start writing at nine o'clock and you finish at five? I mean, what's your writing process? Um, I've never really changed the fact that I, I, I mean, I write by hand and I write, you Oh, know, wow. Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I, don't, I, don't write, I don't type it up until kind of the end or as much, you know, until I filled a notebook. Yeah. Um, but I just do, 
as many kind of, I write in two hour blocks and squeeze mm-hmm. as many two hour blocks as I can. Um, mm-hmm. And I always kind of move location every two hours. So I'm just kind of, you know, mm. in bed on the couch, in a cafe, at the beach, wherever, you know, I, you know, I've do it within the con within the, the parameters of also having, you know, a child who wakes up and, mm. you know, all the child related mm. things. And, yeah. you know, I write, I, I, I write during elementary school hours. Right. <laughs> right. Um, I want to just get back to the uh, writing and filling up notebooks. So do you transcribe that notebook or do you wait till you've finished? I mean, how does that process work? Yeah, I tr- well, it's sort of changed recently because I it was always like a laborious transcribing period, not only because sometimes I can't read my own handwriting, but just because it's, it's really time consuming uh, mm. to do that. And I always kind of dread that period, even though... The um, transcribing period. The, the transcribing, because it's, yeah. it means that I'm not creating during that period and sometimes it takes You're not days. editing? I mean, I, I, if something is glaringly terrible, mm. I just don't, I don't transcribe it. Um, which, but you're not changing things as you're transcribing? No, I'm just, I need to get it all in there and okay. then I'll, I'll edit once it's in there. But it's changed recently because of um, like voice dictation software. So now I don't really transcribe it. Now I can just read it into an app. And the voice recognition technology has advanced to a point where um, it's accurate. So yeah, so I just, and that is much better because I can do that. I, you know, the problem with humans is, you know, writers as we, we spend way too much time sitting, which is just horrible for the body. So mm. at least that part now I can do while you're walking around, walking around. Yeah. Yeah. No, I understand that. I do Pilates with some writers cause I've always got a bad back. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I want to talk about uh, the new book. He goes nothing. Okay. So I, when I talk to crime fiction writers, sometimes I think they must be whoa, what is going on in that head, right? You know, we come up with a plot like that. And, you know, I'm so fearful that I can't even read it with the doors unlocked. I was thinking those thoughts when I was reading your book. Yeah. What goes on in that head? Well, you know what goes on because you've read the book. (laughs) So talk to me about it. Firstly, talk to me about the book and talk to me um, about – because it's quite a zany story, isn't it? It's an out there story. Yeah. Uh, Talk to me about that and where that whole idea came from. Yeah, it's hard to kind of pinpoint it down because, you know, these things sort of evolve over years. But basically, in my mind, it's like the third in a trilogy. Mm. And the first – like it's a fear trilogy. So the first book's about the fear of death. My second book was about the fear of kind of life and suffering. And this book was about a fear which – and again, I, when I talk about these fears, I mean, you know, um, their impact on human behavior. Mm-hmm. And this book, this fear was that I wanted to write about was the fear of, you know, the opinions of other people, which I think is a, you know, a huge motivating fear in people's lives. And I always thought it was kind of funny that, and as I was kind of working on how to write about this, I thought about, you know, the fact that our mortality doesn't have much impact on our lives. And, you know, they, the Romans used to, like, you know, have the corpse at the feast so they would be reminded of the ma- their mortality and the fact that, you know, that you even need to be reminded mm-hmm. that life is short. Quick, don't forget, we have to mm-hmm. keep reminding ourselves that life is short. So I thought about writing it in this, in a, in a, 
a kind of version of life where like life just goes on even after death and then you know and then how do you deal with this kind of problem of 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 being kind of influenced by other people's opinions and um but then you know at, at the same time you know i have that kind of thing going on and then i have this kind of enjoyable this sort of triangle idea going on and yeah the story idea um and it's kind of like four or five different things happening at the same time in my head and then they all sort of converge to 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 make this story mm. just um on touching on being you know worried about other people's opinions of us i think for a writer that it always you know, and I've talked about this before on the podcast, seven years to write a book or five years to write a book and you're locked in a room and, you know, it's not easy, as you know, um, and it's not financially viable usually. (laughs) And then you finally deliver that book to your publisher and then there's lots of changes there and then, that you know, finally you put that book out and then everyone has an opinion. Yeah, goddamn them. You know, crazy, Um, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) At at this point, I mean... Yeah, you, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, about you know about it, and uh, it is what it is. And I think living also for so long, you know, I didn't publish my first book until I was what like 33 or something. So um, living so long with you know as a writer and writing the book that takes so long, other people's opinions at that point doesn't you know they just can't have that much of an impact because yeah. I've I've already like doubled down on myself like. 10 times so yeah so you know it's funnily the praise isn't as impactful as you'd think it would be neither is the criticism it's just sort of like oh well yeah I was speaking to Charlotte Wood recently um he might know a wonderful Australian writer um and she was saying to me that um once that book is out then it doesn't belong to her it belongs to the reader yeah I mean I can respect that that idea. Yeah, I mean, I have that kind. I have the kind, more the kind of feeling. I mean, obviously, I write very much with. I tell a story that has a pace, and it is to be read by people and hopefully enjoyed. But at the same time, I always have that feeling that, like, when somebody says, "Oh, I read your book," I'm like, "I sort of think, how'd you get it?" It's like it feels like somebody's read my diary or something. Mm. Um, yeah, there's a quote by this Romanian philosopher Sioran, and he says, "Like, you should only put things in books that you would never dare to say to people in real life." And and I sort of have, have <laughs> that general feeling. So. Yeah. Yeah, you just have to shame-faced go go about your life. Um, I want to talk about the crazy main character in um, uh, He Goes Nothing. Angus is his name, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's super crazy, right, and full of (laughs) major anxieties. And there's always a bit of mm, the author in writing, and of course it's it's never biographical, but there is obviously your perception and your view about human behaviour in Angus, right? Yeah, well, there's certainly something amusing to me about a lifelong atheist who sort of w- who wakes up in the afterlife. You know, yeah. somebody who's determined, like who's absolutely convinced that there's nothing after death, um, <laughs> and that people are just full of shit, and who believe these things, um, or who say that they've seen ghosts, or say that they, you know, have communed with spirits and all that kind of thing. Um, and you can be bad in this world because in the next world you might score anyway. Yeah, whatever. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I Catholics <laughs> mainly. 
Yeah, look, there's there's three characters in this book, and I and three main characters in this book, and I, you know, I there's probably parts of me in in all of them. The other character, his wife Gracie, you know, she's a wedding celebrant. Yeah. Um, and I am not a wedding celebrant. No, of course. But, but you know, there was a period in my twenties where, and early thirties, where like a lot of my friends started getting married, and you know, one friend asked me to be like the best man and make a speech, and then I made a pretty good speech, and then somebody else, I said, oh, well, can you MC my wedding? And I did that. Then I started getting, you know, people like acquaintances asking me to speak at their weddings, and I, I ended up saying no at the end. But um, I did think, as I was sort of cycling through different um, fallback jobs in my twenties, as I was doing, you know, telemarketing and other sorts of hor- horrible things, um, I did think wedding, wedding celebrant might not be a terrible uh, job. I remember looking up you know, the course at TAFE and thinking, actually, oh, we can do that. Um, but in the end, um, I realized, I think, the stress of, like, ruining somebody's wedding seemed, yeah. seemed uh, not something I wanted to do. Yeah. I mean, you probably got to take it a bit more seriously, right? Yeah, I would, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah. And you know, I haven't, I haven't entirely ruled it out. Like, one day I may... Oh, really? I, I You're still looking at a future career? <laughs> you never know if this TV writing thing doesn't work out. Right. Okay. Um, talk to me about humour because you actually are quite funny. Um. <laughs> well, on the page. Um. On the page. Is it? I always wonder with comedians. Or, well, you're not a comedian, of course, but you write beautiful humour. Is is that part of? Is that how you see the world? Yeah. I mean, that is just. Yeah, that is my default way of looking at things and coping probably i mean you know i i definitely had i didn't have like a difficult childhood but i had certainly like i i had like some operations when i was a kid and i spent some time in hospital when i was like 6 and 7 and and definitely had a share of kind of difficulties that made you know humor i mean who knows why a person's kind of goes to that that sort of, yeah, dark humour kind of um, was... So you were the funny kid? I was a funny kid. I don't know if I was the funny kid. Yeah. But, yeah, I really did like doing it. And once also I have this, um, as I said, kind of writing was a default hobby, you know, I would write, yeah, I'd like to kind of, whether it was funny birthday cards for people or, you know, just writing funny short stories or, um, yeah, it's just something that, came sort of naturally to me and something that I enjoy doing. Yeah, yeah. It's very observant. I think it's um, it's really pulls together a very dark subject and, you know, gives it life, really, the humour. Yeah, and I just, um, I mean, it's just the kind of way that I learnt to write. I, I feel like I just, I feel like it just kind of merged in the formative years and I probably just don't even know how to like completely disentangle it if I wanted to. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I probably could, but I, I also like writing for me is the pleasure. Like I get a lot of pleasure out of writing yeah. um, and I wouldn't do it if I didn't enjoy it. I mean, I'm lucky. I, I do hear a lot of writers that I know complain about how much they hate writing and I, I just don't feel that way. I feel very fortunate that I really enjoy it. And so part of that is because, you know, there's like a split second when you're writing, it's not like the thoughts form and then you put them down on paper. It's like it's happening at the same time. And so there's, it's often that 
I mean, when I'm reading what I'm writing at the moment that I'm writing it, I'm discovering it at the same time. So I'm like my first reader. Yeah. Um, because it's happening at a at a kind of slightly unconscious level. Yeah. Um, and the words are coming on the page like a split second before my conscious mind is reading it. So, and, you know, maybe I just like to make myself laugh. So mm. that's why it comes mm. out. So when you're screenwriting, do it, 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 that humour comes in as well? Is that the style that you prefer? Yeah, it's different, but it's, um, yeah, definitely yeah. Um, skews that way. Yeah, I want, I want to go back to the book because, um, I mean, it is a very dark subject um, in, in a way, but, you know, as I said earlier, that you bring humour to it. Do you, are you fearful about the direction that we're going? Are you fear because, you know, there is a pandemic coming in this book, there's, you know. Yeah. Did you start writing it before COVID or? Yeah, that was the crazy thing was that I had decided, because um, I had um, the story of, Angus going to the afterlife and I did yeah. have them going back to the house with with Gracie and Owen the two other characters uh, in the book but for a while I just had Gracie and Owen just hanging around the house and I was like I could have given them something else to do yeah. and then <laughs> I sort of thought this kind of phrase came to my mind which is kind of revolution in heaven apocalypse on earth and I yeah. thought that I just I thought that would be a nice um uh, like kind of a nice thing to balance out. And um, so, yeah, so I, I, mo- I wrote most of the book in 2019, to be honest, like, and so I did a lot of writing in that year. And so, yeah, I, I had decided on a, on a, a pandemic and I had like read all these books about zoonotic diseases and plagues. And, and so when, when it all started ha- happening in like 2020, I was quite familiar with the terminology. Well, and, you are now living it. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. um, you know, we have this thing called presentism where, where it is very, you know, we always think we're in end times. We always think that this is the most important moment and it's never been as bad. And, you know, you just have to look back in history and go like, imagine, you know, like living in, you know, they would have thought that, you know, during the Cold War in the yeah, 70s and, you know, this yeah. just in the 30s, you know, imagine like, can you, I mean, living between, you know, in in 1914 or, you know, or during the Great Depression, like it always seems like end time. So I, I am aware that we'll probably get through this. I mean, I think the climate stuff is, is more yeah. um, certainly frightening. Yeah, yeah. it's is more frightening. I don't know what to think Oh, well, about. I think in Australia too for us, I mean, I think we're all, you know, traumatised at the moment because we started with the bushfires yeah. and then not long after that, you know, uh, COVID hit and then, you know, the way it was handled, we were seriously locked down or locked yeah, in, yeah. you know. So that was tough. Um, but even too, the tsunami, the recent tsunami, and, you know, that had an effect on the um, on the coast of Australia as well, like, you know. Yeah. You c- couldn't swim in the beaches and... There was real tides coming in, but anyway, sure. it but does. I also think I also think that we we lived through an unprecedented calm period in human history, we did. and we think that that's normal, but it's not normal. You know, like for most of human history, so you know, it's always been kind of famine, pestilence, war, you know, natural disasters as well, and and so you know, this is just part of being a human. Steve, you're all, already you're making me feel better. <laughs> I need to Suffering's talk to you a more. part of life, please. Just. I need to talk to you more often. I love the fact that how um, the afterlife, like heaven, got crowded. I thought that was that just tickled my sense of humour so much. But anyway, are you working? Are you starting on a new book? Yeah, 
Um, Yes, it's almost like a sickness, I guess, because I think I remember, (laughs) like, you know, metaphorically typing the end and and sending it off. And, you know, the day that I sent it off and then sort of the next morning I woke up and just like opened a new notebook and started again. Like I didn't even take a day. Um, It's also because these things take so long to write and I have like a whole series of ideas um, backed up in the queue waiting to... In your mind. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, I think we're out of time. Thank you so much, Steve Tolls. It really is just such a privilege. Um, And thank you for coming in. Thank you. It's so nice to talk to you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.